you would turn with me in your New Testaments to Acts the 28th chapter. Acts chapter 28, and we'll be there in a moment. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning, especially good to see some visitors, and we want you to know how thankful we are for your presence, and we, of course, invite you back at any other opportunity, and we invite you to request studies or ask questions that you may have about what we believe here and what we've been doing, and we would love to sit down over an open Bible and study with you. As the book of Acts comes to an end, you remember well that the Apostle Paul, being accused by the Jews, appealed to Caesar, and so to Caesar they sent him. But it wasn't a very smooth trip to Rome to stand before Caesar in judgment. He took three ships as a prisoner with other prisoners to eventually get to Rome from Caesarea to Myra, from Myra to Malta, and from Malta to Puteoli, a city in Italy, and then on to Rome as he appealed to Caesar. In Myra, he was put on an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. And you might remember in Acts the 27th chapter, after he had warned the men that he perceived it would end in disaster in verse 10 of Acts 27, it says, not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon, and that gave them trouble for some time. Eventually, they decided to, as they saw land, point the ship toward land and run it up on the shore. They didn't even get that far. They ran the ship aground and the waves beat vehemently against the ship and tore it to shreds. And they clung on to the debris and all of them were spared. As Paul had mentioned, you might remember he told them to not lose heart, but an angel had told him that they would be spared. And so they certainly were. But in chapter 28, they had reached the land of the island called Malta, upon which they intended to run the ship, but they didn't get that far. Notice in verse 1 of Acts 28, it says, When they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. If we went on to read, we read of an impressive account of the Apostle Paul among people who were native to that island as he had shown to be with the Lord as the Lord provided for him being bit by a serpent and then not having any harm done to him. He preached the gospel on this island and it shows the incredible provision of God through his providence to lead the gospel into every corner of the world as was given in the Great Commission and as was promised by God would be afforded to all mankind. And the Apostle Paul did what the Apostle Paul does as he's on his way to Rome because he has preached the gospel and is a prisoner. He still preaches the gospel and in Rome he would still preach the gospel. But there's something else that's very impressive about this account beyond even just one that we would expect to be serving the Lord in this capacity as the Apostle Paul, because we see the natives of the island of Malta do something very special for the Apostle Paul and the rest of the, the prisoners. It says that they showed unusual kindness. The New American Standard Bible says extraordinary kindness. There are other translations that describe it as no common 
kindness. And so they did something that was completely unexpected to the Apostle Paul, to the prisoners, to, to anyone who would think about the situation. They did beyond what they would have been expected. It says that they kindled a fire and made them feel welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. You can imagine just how shaken the apostle and the other prisoners were and how they were literally shaking from the cold, how they were on this strange island without provision. It was all sinking to the bottom of the sea and how desperate they would have been and what a great deal this did for them as the natives showed them such kindness. Well, let me suggest to you that the actions of those natives that may appear at first reading to be a very small thing were tremendous and had a great effect and a deal of good on those people. And it's the same for us. We might remember Jesus mentioning in his his ministry in Matthew chapter 10 about how some who would receive one who was sent by Jesus, even just giving a cup of cold water, how much that would mean and what a great deal it would mean for their faith as they extended help to those who are preaching the gospel. As brethren, we are given great responsibility to take care of each other, to look out for each other, to provide for each other's physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. And I think sometimes we can underestimate just the amount of good that we can do as we try to make it appear to ourselves that we are insufficient in what we could offer. But if we can offer something, it does a great deal of good. If we just show a little kindness, if we just show a little good deed, it can do a great deal. If we just do our part as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we live in a cold, cold world, full of troubles, we certainly can help each other get to heaven and cope and deal with and grow in our faith in these various struggles. Let's just consider for a moment the cold that we face in this temporal life. It's very clear throughout the scriptures that we're going to go through trial and tribulation. It's not a, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And as Christians, that grows exponentially. Every single person who has ever stepped foot on the face of this earth has experienced trial and tribulation, some greater than others. Some have had it fairly well, but everyone is afflicted in the flesh, whether it be a physical illness or even emotional tolls that weigh on us as we go throughout this imperfect world and this imperfect life. We live in a cold world full of trial and tribulation. We remember in Acts the 14th chapter, the Apostle Paul is stoned and left for dead because he had preached the gospel. And he did something very impressive when he eventually got up and went to the brethren, still beaten and battered and bloodied and worn. It says that he strengthened the souls of the disciples in Acts 14 and verse 22. And we might wonder how he could do such a thing after being left for dead, but it says that he exhorted them to continue in the faith. We're impressed throughout the life of Paul and Peter, the other apostles and Christians in the first century, as we have the records preserved, how they always focused on the spiritual matters. No matter how hard the physical life became, they helped each other grow spiritually. And notice what he said in Acts 14, 22. He strengthened their faith and exhorted them saying, we must 
through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must shows necessity. It is appointed for us to suffer. Certainly for the Lord, but the very fact of physical existence lends to the reality of suffering, of trial and tribulation. And while we must be willing to suffer for the cause of the Lord, and certainly if we're living by faith, we will. Let me suggest to you that the very existence in the flesh necessitates that we face the common plights of human existence with faith and endurance. We must go through these various trials and be faithful if we are to see the Lord in the end. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul or Peter is looking at in 1 Peter chapter 1. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, he gives some attention to the fact that they had been begotten again to a living hope, that we look forward to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, it does not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for us. And, and I think that there's some wisdom in him describing it in the negative because we wouldn't be able to comprehend the positive description of our heavenly home, of that body that would be prepared for us. But knowing the world we live in, it makes sense to describe it in that negative way. It does not degrade like everything else in this life does. It is perfect and it endures as it's fit for eternity. But notice in verse 6, after he says that we're kept by the power of God through faith, he then necessarily follows with, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, 1 Peter 1, 6, you are grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. Not the middle, not the beginning. It is a journey and it's the end of your faith where you receive the salvation of your souls. The very nature of salvation and faith in the plan of God boasts of a test under which we're subjected. And we need to face every second of life understanding it's a test. And having faith in the grace of God to get us through that test, but it is a journey and it is worth it because we will receive the end of our faith, salvation of our souls. I'm impressed by the way the Apostle Paul put it by inspiration in Romans 8 and verse 20. He says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. There's a lot of people in the world today who don't believe in God, and their main reason is because while we claim to worship and serve a God that is not just all good, a God that is full of goodness and love and mercy and concern and compassion for the mankind He created who is going through various forms of suffering and such, but that He is omnipotent, people suggest there's an inconsistency there and he couldn't possibly exist. There's a contradiction there. And they don't consider what God says of himself, what he reveals of himself and his plan for us in the Old and New Testament. And so they don't see a harmony of that. They see an inconsistency. In Romans 8 and verse 20, I see a consistency. I see a harmony. He subjected us to futility, not willingly. We would have never chosen this for ourselves. We would have never chosen to go through what we have to go through in this fleshly capacity on earth. But the reason He allows us to go through it 
He allows Satan to, to wage war on our flesh and on our souls. And, and we have a hard time to get through this is because he wants us to know there's something greater beyond. He subjected it to us in hope. We have something to look forward to. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter to that end. When the Apostle Paul is speaking of the suffering of the present time, especially with the apostles and what they're going through, he's demonstrating that while it's extremely negative and it's difficult, it's hard. There's a purpose to it. Make no mistake about it. God is allowing it to happen. He didn't inflict the pain. Man sinned and brought this on himself. Satan wants it to be worse than it's ever been before each and every day we exist. But God allows it and and through His grace and His mercy, it has a purpose toward the salvation of our souls. So notice in 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He'd go on to say in chapter 5 and in verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's seeing what is unseen. What he's describing here is because God has equipped us with His Word and with appear into the future of glory and what is promised us and what is awaiting us is that as we look at our sufferings and our trials and tribulations through that lens, what it does for us is to become less connected with this world. One writer has put it that affliction is like a knife that severs each cord that attaches us to this earth. When we go through something difficult, We get closer to the Lord because that's where we want to be. There is no pain or anguish there. Christians look at it with this perspective, and it will not disappoint. He says that home that is prepared without hands is waiting for us. We live in a cold, cold world, but there is warmth. I think that another thing the Bible is clear about, that as we're seeking to live righteous lives, we live in a cold world of worldliness, of sin, of ungodliness. In John 17, Jesus in his prayer to God, after praying, considering his own relationship and what he went through and what he's going to go through, prays on behalf of his ambassadors who then would teach us and he prays on behalf of believers. But notice what he says in John 17 and verse 15 about the apostles, which would also apply to us. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So just like God doesn't take us out of a situation of trial and tribulation, but actually allows us to go through it to strengthen our faith. So it is with the worldliness around us. We're not supposed to live as monks up on some mountain in a cave, not having anything to do with anyone in the world. We're supposed to face the ungodliness and the worldliness and the sinfulness of this human race so that we can sanctify ourselves, so that we can see sin as it really is and pursue holiness to a greater degree. And so that we can teach others how to get out of that and we can show them the hope that we have as Christians 
make no mistake about it, living in this world is cold. When we seek the light and warmth of God's glory, but we are so far from it as we live in this sinful world, it's hard. The greater you grow in your faith, the more and more you'll feel it too. And that just draws us ever near to the Lord. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, Lot is mentioned as a righteous man as he was struggling in his situation. And the text is telling us that God's going to provide for us and take care of us. But notice how it's described in 2 Peter 2 and verse 7, that God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. He elaborates on that in verse 8. He was oppressed for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Oh yes, we live in a cold world. It torments the faithful, the godly, the holy, the children of God. But there are provisions. Psalm 23 and verse 4 says, We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Brethren, that's true not just because of the physical trials and afflictions that we experience. It's true because of the sin and death spiritually all around us. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We need to realize the coldness that we're subject to and help each other in it. And lastly, we face the cold of doing good. And that may seem paradoxical, but when we're doing good in a sin-ridden world, it's burdensome and and it can be difficult. We must not grow weary. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Paul put it this way, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It can be easy for us to fall into this place of thinking that it's not worth it. And we get so burdened and wearied that we may be tempted to quit. That's the cold we face. Do not grow weary while doing good. In 1 John 5 and verse 3, John tells us the commandments of God are not burdensome. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 11 and verses 29 through 30. My yoke is easy. My burden, it's a burden, but it's light compared to the burden of sin, compared to the burden of no hope. And so he tells us don't grow weary while doing good in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 9, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We need to be an encouragement to one another as we live in this cold, cold world. And what are the means of that warmth? Those who are native on the island of Malta kindled a fire for those people and helped a great deal. What's the fire that we can use? Let me suggest to you firstly that it is the Word of God. In Psalm 119 and verse 105, the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It illuminates our path that we know where we're going. And we can avoid obstacles. We can overcome tribulation and trials and things that lay in our path to impede us from progressing in righteousness. The Word sheds light on it, but that light is also warmth. And I think the Scripture is very clear about that. Consider in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, In Luke chapter 24, he came and appeared, though they did not know it was him, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I think we're familiar with the account where they were discussing the events that had just taken place. And Jesus said to them in verse 17 of Luke 24, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? The account progresses as they talk to him about the things of 
Jesus' death and his burial and what they thought or who they thought Jesus was and what they thought that he would do. And then Jesus said in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the people, uh, the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Notice here in verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He eventually made himself known to them as he was eating with them and then vanished. Notice what it is said that they said in verse 32, right after they realized who it was, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. This is not a description of some indescribable, miraculous, otherworldly warmth. It's a description of the effect that this truth had on their minds and hearts. They were completely distraught. Everything that they had believed Jesus was has been circling the drain because he was put to death and he's in the tomb as far as they're concerned. He's, he's nowhere to be seen, rather. They, they were told that he's not anymore, but they're confused as ever could be. They are heartbroken. They are in a complete state of disarray. And Jesus explains how all of this fits together. How comforting is that? In his commentary on the text, William Barclay says, it tells us of the ability of Jesus to make sense of things. The whole situation seemed to have no explanation. For these followers of Jesus, all their hopes and dreams were shattered. There is all the poignant, wistful, Bewildered regret in the world and in their sorrowing words. We were hoping that he was the one who was going to rescue Israel. They are the words of people whose hope, hopes and uh, are dead and buried. Then Jesus came and talked with them. And the meaning of life became clear and the darkness became light. It is only Jesus that even in the bewildering times, we learn what the meaning of life is. We need to understand just what the Word of God does for us. In times of disorientation and confusion, maybe regret, sorrow, doubts, fears, it puts us back on the right path and gives us perspective that we can count on. In Romans 15 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul put it this way, concerning the Old Testament, whatever things are written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. He'd go on to say in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And we know that believing comes by the word of God. That you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We find comfort and warmth in the word of God. Secondly, we find that warmth in prayer to God. In James chapter 5 and in verse 13, he encourages them, If anyone is suffering, let him pray. He'd go on to describe the power of prayer, saying in verse 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much and gives the example of Elijah who prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed that the rain would come again and it certainly did come. Prayer is powerful. The very fact that we are giving our thoughts and concerns, our words, our innermost struggles to the omnipotent one who cares more than anyone else is in itself alone powerful enough to make a difference. But He acts. 
He can change things. He can intervene in ways that He's promised and prayer is effective. Something that should grant us great comfort is seen in Revelation 5 and verse 8 in the throne scene of God. You notice in Revelation 5 and verse 8, it says that when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb and having a heart, the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Before the throne of God are our prayers. That's where they go. They don't get stopped by the ceiling. They don't get stopped by the atmosphere. They go right up to the throne of God and He hears them. He cares about them and He is going to take them into consideration. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4 and verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And let me tell you, there is no place, there is no situation, there is no circumstance except your own unfaithfulness that can hinder your, your prayers. Remember in Jonah 2, after Jonah had fled from the presence of the Lord and he's swallowed by a great fish and he has a change of mind, he's going to do what the Lord says to do. He first prays to God and he's in the belly of the fish and God hears him and God spits him out onto dry land and Jonah's able to go onward. He has some other problems, but prayer works and it works anywhere. Thirdly, a means of warmth is the fact that we have a relationship with our Lord that cannot fail and He will not fail us. In 2 Timothy 4 and in verse 16, the Apostle Paul, nearing the end of his life, said, At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. The Lord stood with him when all else forsook him. The Lord is with us. He's not with us in person. He wasn't with Paul in person, but He's with us through His will, as we submit to His will, as we have a passion for His will, He is going to be with us through thick and through thin. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, they were told to deliver that unfaithful one who had had a relationship with his father's wife to Satan. It says, along with my spirit, Paul says, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we act in the will of God, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. He is with us. And we need to realize that. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, the Hebrew writer encourages, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Consider the imagery we get of that at the end of Stephen's life in Acts 7. Stephen was one who was doing the will of the Father no matter what, and Jesus was with him. In Acts 7 and verse 54, they heard the things Stephen said at the conclusion of his sermon. They gnashed at him with their teeth and being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, Stephen did, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I'm not saying that'll happen to us, but there's a reason it's recorded. Stephen was a faithful man and he was given the visual of what is true for each and every faithful child of God in times of torment and trouble. He's looking at us. He's caring for us. And he's beckoning us to faithfulness so that He can welcome us home in the end. We have fellowship with the Lord. And that's enough warmth for us. But by His grace, His mercy, and His wisdom, He made sure that we'd have fellowship and a relationship with others who have a relationship with Him. 
We are indeed physical creatures, and so we long for that kind of interaction as we're in the flesh. And God knows that, so He gave us a family that we can see, that we can experience in that way and rely upon. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, it says that since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. When you obey the gospel, you're added to a people who sincerely and fiercely love you, expressed in acts of kindness and goodness and service. You belong to the people of God. And those people of God can provide warmth for you. Galatians 6 and in verse 1 The Apostle Paul encouraged, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Yes, we live in a cold, cold, dark, difficult world, but God has not left us without a fire. He's not left us without guidance and warmth and comfort. And as He's given that to each one of us, as those natives on Malta did, we need to kindle a fire for each other. We use those means of warmth to warm each other, not just ourselves. We have a great responsibility and duty to each other to take what God has blessed us with and be a channel of His blessings to other people. It is a great deal of responsibility and one that we should be overjoyed to participate in. Consider that one of three things as we continue through this lesson and come to a close very soon, that we need to kindle a fire for others and not forsaking the assembly. What you're doing here this morning has provided warmth for my soul. It provides encouragement. It provides edification and that according to the very plan of God. Now, if you forsake that, you are putting the fire out for other people. Far be it from us to ever do such a thing. In Hebrews 10 and verse 24, the Hebrew writer said, let us consider one another. You know, those natives on Malta, they were considerate of these struggling and poor prisoners they may not have known, but men who were fighting for their lives and shivering from the cold. And as human nature would lead us to do, if we see someone like that, we usually immediately have a kind of compassion. We might not move to do something, though we should, we immediately are struck with compassion. So we need to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And this is how you do it. You don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So in considering one another to stir up love and good works, we assemble together. We exhort one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. In Philippians 2 and verse 4, Paul said that we ought to look out for each other's interests and not the interests of our own only. And so this is how we do it in part. We stir up love and we stir up good works. When we come together, we teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the Word of God that provides warmth, we communicate to each other here. It may not be something that we don't know. It may be something that we've forgotten. It may be something that we haven't forgotten and we do know. But the very fact that my brother or sister in Christ is speaking that to me provides me warmth. I appreciate DJ and the songs that he chose to lead because it's certainly an encouraging thing that we just participated in. Thank God for that provision. We pray, and we pray with understanding. When an individual comes up here and leads a prayer, it is our duty to think about what is being said so that prayer becomes our prayer. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says we to pray with the Spirit, but also pray with the understanding, or else it really doesn't do anything for us. 
But if we are making that prayer our prayer, which is what a public prayer is meant to do, certainly we're casting our cares and burdens upon God, knowing He'll provide for us. We hear the Word of God preached, which brings us great comfort. We also, I think, as we consider the warmth that we can provide each other, can do so by simple greetings, by telling each other how we appreciate each other, by reaching out with a hand and shaking each other's hands, by giving each other hugs, by, by just asking how we're doing, by encouraging one another, by, by making acknowledgments of each other's faith and, and how encouraging it is that, that you are still faithful, that you're growing in your faith. These may be little things in our minds, but they grow a great deal of faith and encouragement in others. You notice in Romans chapter 16 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul encourages, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. That word greet comes from the Greek word espazomai, and it literally means, Strong says, to draw to oneself. To draw to oneself, to enfold in the arms, to salute. And so when you greet someone, you greet your brother or sister in Christ, Do not minimize what you're doing. And just consider Paul's greetings there in Romans 16. Notice in verses 3 through 5, he talks about greeting Priscilla and Aquila. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, they're my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They've risked their necks for my life to whom I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles and greet the church in their house. Priscilla and Aquila, I am not looking past what you've done for me and for the Lord. And if the Apostle Paul is acknowledging these people and their faith and their sacrifice for the Lord, how much would that mean to them? It's not without meaning. He mentions the Mary who labored much for us. He doesn't say what she did, but she's a hard worker. He mentions Andronicus and Junia, and he says, they're my countrymen and fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles. He didn't have to say that, but he did. How much would that bolster their faith? He mentions someone like Amplius in verse 8, and he just calls him his beloved. Paul loves him. Paul cares for him. He mentions Apollos, who is approved in Christ. He, He was tested. He went through something. We're not told what it is, but he came out the other side with proven character, and Paul recognized it. He goes on throughout that to mention what may seem to be small things, but you imagine your name in this epistle being read among the Romans, and what a great deal that would mean to you. Greet one another, brethren. It goes a long way. And lastly, we need to continue daily with one another. In Hebrews chapter 3, he tells us to exhort one another daily lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Be impressed by what we read in Acts 2. In Acts 2, very briefly after the church is established, it says that they continued daily with one accord in the temple. They weren't just worshiping on Sunday. When we have a gospel meeting, it's it's so that we can come together daily in that week. When when we have extra studies, midweek Bible study, it's not insignificant. This is something we do for God, and it's also something we do for each other. They continue daily with one accord in temple. And notice the rest of that, and breaking bread from house to house. That word and, by the way, it's the word T-E in the Greek. And Strong mentions that it means not only, but also. He's not saying that this is the same thing as the assembly, but because they are fellow believers, their lives are intimately connected. So they broke bread from house to house and ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart 
praising God and having favor with all the people. You see, brethren in the first century were not just greeting each other and seeing each other on Sunday, but they were intimately involved in each other's lives. This is how it's described in Acts the ninth chapter. When the Apostle Paul joined the disciples in Jerusalem, it says in verse 28, after they accepted him into their fellowship as they were commanded to do by the Lord, that he was a faithful Christian. He was with them at Jerusalem, Acts 9, 28, coming in and going out. That phrase is used in Acts 1 in verse 21 when they're deciding who's going to replace Judas Iscariot. This is one of the, the prerequisites to being an apostle of those men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Gareth Reese in his commentary on Acts says, went in and out is a phrase signifying that he was their constant companion. It expresses in general all the actions of life. Brethren are involved in each other's lives. We can know when we're at our highs and at our lows, when we're in need and, and when we're doing well, we can know what to do to praise each other and, and encourage each other in what we're doing in faithfulness and how to admonish each other when we're going astray, how to encourage each other in the plights of life, how to help each other get to heaven because we're involved in each other's daily lives. We have a great deal of responsibility to warm each other in this cold, cold world. And even the little things go a long ways. We can learn a lot from the natives of Malta as they simply kindled a fire to comfort those people who are trembling in the cold and in the rain. May we have the faith to do the same for each other. Before we dismiss to our Bible classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.